Hello out there, and welcome to No Stupid Answers Episode 3, the show where a doctor of philosophy, a recovering archaeologist, a professional engineer, and a corporate millennial provide in-depth answers to Reddit's best questions. I'm Colton Wallace with some big timers today. Joining me is Loria Sapa. Hey, all Jessica Uzarians. Hi. And man who fell off his bicycle, Josh Lieto. Hey, guys. So, Josh, you, you fell off your bicycle. I crashed off of my bicycle. I want to stress I was going at a high <laughs> velocity velocity with a lot of momentum, and it was not mm. my fault. Uh, and as a result, I am all bandaged up, and I can't do anything except for talking this podcast. So here I am. <laughs> so if it wasn't your fault, whose fault was it? It was the uh, fault of the Alameda City Planning Commission. Because what they did is they allowed for an area which was crisscrossed with various railroad tracks of various eras, reaching all the way back to the gold rush and immediately after that, all the way up until the current day. And uh, my, I, was, I, was, I was biking at uh, about 11 miles an hour directly into the winds off of the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. And um, it was at this point that I encountered this tangled web of railroad tracks and my bike's tire caught one of the grooves in the railroad tracks and it uh pulled me down and um the epic it was it was i was very injured afterwards and then of course there was a car driving slowly by as that happened and then i had to (laughs) avert my eyes in shame but raise my bloody left hand and say i'm okay thank you i'm okay thank you did you wait did did you actually say you're okay and raise your bloody hand the people stopped yeah there was like this people driving some kind of i don't know it was like it was a nice car it was like an audi or something and they they stopped and they were like hi are you okay and i was just like I just rate. I literally my uh, my my palms got really uh, palms got really torn up. My uh, right forearm got torn up, and my knee has a really bad scrape on it. Uh, so I have just I I've you know it's uh, I got I was bleeding from all these places, and I'm just like telling these people that you know though I'm okay. Like thanks. Um, How far away from home were you? About three miles. Oh shit! So I biked. So did you Uber I biked back hard. I biked hard three miles into the wind, and the amazing part was I just decided <laughs> because basically where I live, the wind comes in off the San Francisco Bay, and it's just you uh-huh. know ocean wind comes in like it is just it, where I live. If you are traveling in a northern or a western direction, you are gonna be you are gonna be facing headwinds no matter what, and so I decided. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to go on a bike ride. I'm going to really kick ass today, and I'm going to ride right into the wind until I can go no farther. I went all the way to the western end of the island where there's an aircraft carrier, and I went all the way down to the end of the dock and turned around, and it was shortly thereafter that uh, I encountered the old railroad tracks, and they took me down. Um, of course, the whole thing probably happened, the fall itself, in about two to three seconds. But, of course, for me, I just experienced it as one thing happening all at once. It was mm. like I had, I didn't have any, I did. I was like, and I, and I had, a, and I saw the railroad tracks ahead. I saw the tra- tangle of tracks and I said, that's going to be difficult to navigate. And I said, you know, through that, I'm, I, I can do this. And I just pedaled even faster and I just went right into it and uh, completely, you know, the, 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 uh, the railroad tracks broke my bicycle and the the ground broke my fall and uh, the chain on the bike completely <laughs> snapped <laughs> the chain is broken so on the bike sad. yeah so we had to tie it up mm. and leave it there so it's just like 
There's you left like, it there. Well, dude, what was I gonna do? I was like, I, I I called Lori. I was like, I was a couple miles away from home. I was like, you know, I'm bleeding from four places. Like, I could try to walk this bike three miles home, or I could just call my wife and she could come pick me up. And so she came and you know brought some napkins and uh you know <laughs> I cleaned up the blood a little bit. But it was a very embarrassing 15 minutes of just sitting oh there while people gosh. were driving by. And I'm just like, you know, I just like have my palms in my hands are like facing the ground so nobody can see my bloody palms. And I'm just like, you know, anyways, so that was, uh, that was my adventure this Saturday. So, uh, for all of those out there, I, I mean, my, my takeaway from it is that it is, uh, if you're trying to exercise, don't just stay in, be lazy because that's Dangerous. The, it's the only reason that I was doing that. And now I cannot exercise for probably uh, a couple more days and it's not pleasant. So let's all hope you can get out there next week. And I'm glad you didn't break anything. Wear your helmets, y'all. Mm-hmm. I was wearing a helmet. I will say that. And of course oh, my head was good. fine. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely wear your helmet. Always wear a helmet. All right, then let's uh, move into the questions here. So our first question this week comes in from user, a gang of old women. And the question is what happens when two people with hyphenated last names get married? And then the description is, I get that they could just keep their last names individually or pick one of their last names, but given they already have the inclination to hyphenate, are there people with four last names? If so, where does it end? And then they list some examples of four names together. So uh, I'm curious what your guys' thoughts on hyphenated last names are, because I've, I've wondered this before. It's a very good question. Last names are very interesting. Um, to me, if you're at the point of four last names... Just make up your own last name. Be the awesomes or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's just way too many letters for me. But also, I think last names come with a lot of uh, kind of like society challenges and stuff. And I feel mm-hmm. I say just do what you want to do. If you want eight last names, have eight last names. Call it good. Imagine writing that out, though. Like, I just think of the the clerical issues that brings up. Yeah, your signature would be so long. Yeah, I... I get like annoyed at two. Like I can't imagine having to deal with two names, yeah. let alone four. Well, God save the bureaucrats is what I say. You know, good <laughs> luck for them. Their job is to write down names. What I think is that if you look at systems of naming around the world, you are going to already see various examples. So like mm-hmm. this is a really interesting question I think the user posed. But, you know, for example, if you look at uh, Spain, right? Think about what a traditional last name looks like in Spain. And it's basically a person's name is a surname plus a father's name and then a mother's name. Um, And that's the traditional way explicitly because of patriarchal society. The father's name comes first because Mm. that's the primary way that descent is traced. And um, it's, it's openly marked as patriarchal essentially. Um, But today in Spain, what's interesting to me is that People can, uh, when they have, they don't have to choose that when they get married, but when they have their first baby, they have to pick like which way do they want to have it. It turns out that over 99% of people in Spain still choose that traditional way where the male, the male line is listed first before the female line, which is. Do you you think, well, with the, with like Spain where the people are still overwhelmingly choosing to put the uh, father's name first. Do you think that even people who don't necessarily care so much are doing it just to avoid the stigma of after they do it? That's a question that I don't know the answer to. Um, but I think that's a good that's a good point. 
tradition is very strong. I mean, if you contrast that with what we do in the U.S., like um, when a couple gets married, typically, I think it's still mostly the case that um, the woman takes the man's name if it's, you know, um, a man and a woman getting married. But like percentages lower. Right. Like it's it's definitely less than it used to be. Right. I wonder if that's that's very interesting because you can see how like you could change a tradition like that kind of almost on the surface level where like, Mm -hmm. you know, we can just in in, on, on paper, in name, we can like, you know, just do differently or defy this tradition that's mm-hmm. been going on for so long. Um, but then behind that, the other, like a bigger question is, you know, you can change a name, but how much is actual like tradition and custom and the way that, you know, things like wealth and power and prestige and, and for family terms, like descent and kinship and like, how is that traced? Because it really says something when you trace your mm-hmm. kinship through the male line, versus the female line versus there's so many different ways to, uh, there's so many different ways to trace kinship. And, um, it really does have an impact on the structure of your society when you trace kinship and descent through the male line and mark that through the last name. Um, but I mean, to come back to the, the user's question, I, I think that, um, if I were to do that, uh, and this is just me. I would probably want to hyphenate and have as many names as possible just to be annoying. <laughs> but that's not something that's going to be well advised for a lot of people out there. Do you think that they just end up like kind of <laughs> leaning into one of the names? Like, I feel like that's what happens is you kind of go by one of them. Mm. Like to people, you know, in general, like some of my friends, I refer to them by their last name. Like that's that's what I call them is their last name. I think so a lot of times w- when people have a hyphenated last name and then they have kids, they'll tend to pick one of those last names for that kid to take on. So it kind of resets and you don't necessarily always get the hyphen. I don't know if that's common, but I've seen mm. that. Um, so it's kind of like you reset once you get to a certain set of hyphening and then the next um, kin would get one of those last names. So I've seen, like, I feel like the most place I've seen the hyphenated last names is in, like, younger, the younger generation currently. Oh, interesting. Like, I've seen, like, you know, like, kids at, like, a a soccer game, and they have a hyphenated last name on their jersey. I'm like, oh, that seems like a chore to deal with. But I don't know. Maybe it's normal if you've just always had it. But it, it seems like it'd be weird to have, like, two last names. Yeah. Well, it's a question that would be really apropos for people who have two last names. And yeah, you know, that's in some, like like I say, some cultures, that's just, that is the norm. So you can imagine the opposite Mm -hmm. in which you might, you might grow up thinking that, um, two last names is the norm. And, uh, conversely, when you see somebody's last name, like, Oh, you see like Wallace on a Jersey. It's like, well, Wallace who like William Wallace, William Wallace's son. Like I need to get some more definitive kinship <laughs> information in this scenario. I think also though, I think that one of the things, I mean, I recently have been trying to figure out like, do you change your last name? Do you not change your last name? It's first of all, a lot of pressure on the, wo- on the woman to make the decision, which is really kind of frustrating because a lot of times it's up to them to make that decision, whether family members or non-family members mm-hmm. don't like it. 
still a lot of pressure. But also, <laughs> I think it's important to realize, like, when you are going to change your name, it doesn't say it has to be somebody's mm -hmm. last name. Like, you can change your name to whatever you want to change your name to. So... It, I mean, I feel like we do tend to like have these societal right. reasons around why we do things. But when you have two hyphenated last names and you want to go for it, go for it. Like if you want to change it to a certain name, go for it. Like I just I would love to challenge that we have to do it the way we've always done it. And also like go for it. Do whatever you want. You can change your name multiple times too, but you just have to be cautious of when and how you change it and make sure you change all of the documentation, not pieces of it. Yeah, don't some documents like <laughs> ask you to list uh, previous yes. names you've went by as well? Yes. So you, you could really create a chore for yourself too. So be careful with how many times you do <laughs> mm -hmm. And Lori, I would say that you personally and myself, like we have, we have done that. Like we've challenged those expectations like i kept my last name when i got married um for my my reasons which were based around you know the fact that like um i've grown to really love my last name and my connection to my family but also because um most of my science is is well all of my science is is written in my um my maiden name so i chose to keep my last name for those personal reasons and like um, but like, you've also made that choice yourself. And so I think that like, um, you know, we have made that decision to buck that tradition and, and expectation. And I don't know if you want to talk about, you know, like why you chose to or not. But um, I think that this is a nice example of how um, it is starting to change and that people can do what they want. Laurie, also, I want to go back to where you said there's a lot of pressure on the woman to make the decision, but like, what's the alternative? Should the husband make the decision for? <laughs> well, no, I asked, I asked, and I said, would you change your last name? And a lot of times, people say no. And also, I realized that is a male-female situation. There's other types mm -hmm. of relationships, yes. so I shouldn't be yeah. just calling out that one specific way. Yeah. Um, so... But, but yeah. I think in the situation of like, as a male, would you change your last name? Like the stigma of doing that would be even more severe. And, but I'm not, I'm also not on the board that women should need to change their names either. But I, I think the stigma you would get if you were a man and you changed to your wife's last name, I feel like there would be so much you would like. But uh, why? Attached to that. I got a cool I, last I, name. You might want to. I button. love it. <laughs> I do think the stigma is high, but I think it's also because a lot of people choose not to do it. So we just don't make an example of it. And I think sure. that is of course. a problem. And I also, I agree. Like, I mean, the reason I kept my last name, it's tied to my like dad side of my family. Mm -hmm. And um, it's also, I am of mixed race. I don't really always look half of the race that I am. And my last name represents that part of me. But also yep. I have... I have whole like X amount of years of my life with that name. Like everything has tied into it. Every yeah. experience I've had right. comes down to that name. And just thinking of changing it just makes me feel like, wait, but what happened to all that other, all the yeah. things that made me who I am today? And it just feels like it disappears when you change your name. But 
Yeah. I have lots of friends that keep their names or switch switch their names. And I just, I think all in all, the more power to you. Choose what makes it feel right for you and screw the rest. And I think it comes down to that for all kinds of marriage. Like that should mm-hmm. be the summary of do what's right for you and your partner and your family and screw the rest. Well, that's ex- existentialism 101 for you folks. <laughs> just do, what, do whatever you want. We it's did all, it. Just do whatever you want individually. It's fine. And we're yeah. and, and it's all good. It's all yeah, good. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, but, but these governments, we, it is hard to keep track of these names. You guys keep trying to change all these things and it's just making it more difficult for us. So I think, I think that we spent 17 minutes about that one. Let's head on to question number two from user Alec Mo 1999 question. Why are Americans workaholics? They don't want to be, well, maybe some of them do, but a lot of them don't want to be. That's, I feel like that's like a misconception maybe like, many people don't desire to have that, but that ends up being what they have to live with. There's things like insurance and, you know, I'm not sure about in other countries, but in the U S if you have employment gaps, it can really hurt you career wise in a lot of cases. And just, you know, like the culture, a lot of times previous generations, like my dad's biggest concern for me was always about how much I was working and making sure I was doing a good job at work. That was like his number one concern for me. Wow. So it, it, I, and I don't want to be a workaholic, but it's just like kind of what the culture tries to drive you towards. And I personally am working very hard to fight against that and not like overwork, but it, it really, especially depending on what kind of careers you get into, like, it's like people just expect that, oh, you should want to do this. This is great experience. Or it's a rite of passage or you have to prove yourself, um, pay your dues. Like those types of attitudes are Mm -hmm. really prevalent in a lot of different um, industries. Yeah. um, I definitely was raised not so much with the work yourself to death mentality, but more so with the the, uh, myth of the 1960s that, if you get a mm-hmm. college education that you're going to be like much better off uh, as an adult making a lot more money. And basically the, the worship of higher education as a way uh, to, to get out and to do better. And um, it's been pretty good for me so far, but um, right. it's one of these things where uh, it is, it is, it, it's hard for me to talk about workaholism because I am not exactly a workaholic. And mm-hmm. I think that somebody who might have a more interesting perspective on this would be Lori. <laughs> you trying to call me out? <laughs> <laughs> just uh, passing, just passing. Wait, we're just, this is just popcorn. Pop, I'd put, like to why, popcorn to Lori. Why are you putting me <laughs> on blast? Um, no, I have a lot of thoughts about this as a probably current maybe recovering workaholic um Mm -hmm. i i think that we should dissect the word which josh is gonna go off on linguistics that i am not going to be able to say but it's very fascinating that we call it workaholicism or whatever it's very tied to similar kind of vibe of alcoholism or any other kind of addiction and i think that that does kind of come into play when we talk about it, people tend to get reward or value 
or money or success or status from their jobs. And sometimes that's the only way they can find it. And so they put everything into it. Um, and I do think that it's something that we need to think of as like, is this, are we really like getting what we are trying to get out of it? And should we be getting it from that, from work? Like there are many other ways to mm -hmm. get that reward value community. Like there's so many other ways to get it, but I think a lot of times and as culture has become a huge thing in companies, a lot of times we end up getting it from our workplaces. And I'm hopeful that with all of the pandemic, remote work, challenging of systems, uh, people are starting to kind of stand up and say, is this really what I want? Is this really what I deserve? Am I getting paid the right things? Am I getting the value I need? Like all the things, I'm hoping that there's a reckoning, but I do think there is something to do with like kind of finding things that you're a little bit addicted to within your workplace and trying to use that to fulfill other gaps in your life. Mm -hmm. I agree with all of that. Um, and also something that like I've been thinking about um, related to this question is like this um, idea of competition and um, personal value. And, um, you know, there's some fields that are just fiercely competitive. And so um, workaholism and like overwork really is, um, you'd almost seen as necessary to get ahead, to compete. And it becomes ingrained in the culture of that particular um, field. And so, you know, this is something I personally experienced in graduate school as a chemistry graduate student. And, you know, my field is notorious for overworking and, you know, this kind of glorification of 70 and 80 hour work weeks and never leaving your bench. And, and again, that is kind of like a, it becomes a proving ground, paying of dues and also a competitive thing. Um, and it's reinforced, um, you know, peer to peer. So like, you know, if you have these cultural norms of like, well, this is how you know, it, it's always been, this is how we do it. This is how we've gained success. Um, it gets perpetuated, especially like peer to peer. Um, you know, in my case, it was graduate student. It's a graduate student in a, and, you know, um, and then that can be really unfortunate. Um, but I think that that element of competition um, is important in that discussion. And also this aspect of personal value, um, which Lori touched upon, you know, we find our value as people in our work. And I think that, I mean, I'm guilty of this. I used to to think, you know, oh, I want to do something I love. And we always say that. It's like cliche, but find what you're passionate about and it'll never be work, right? But I think those are traps. And I, I don't think that it's a, a fair way to live life and to try to equate your value as a person with your output at work. Um but I think that that's what we do as a society. So I think that is reinforcing Americans' tendency to be workaholics because your whole value system is tied up with your identity of, of, of your profession and your this idea of productivity and the need to always be producing. Um, and it's crazy that that's kind of the status quo when in fact uh, we as mammals are famous as, as a as a species for our ability to rest 
and move our move to eat and eat to move. Exactly. <laughs> we move to eat, eat to move. Was that what it was? But Yeah, that's primates, I think. Yeah, but it's like uh, I mean one of these situations where um we are not you have to remember that we're not army ants. We're not insects. We're not, you know, we're not we are not we might we might think of our society as such, but it's really not like that. And uh you know part of part of us having uh being blessed with the intelligence that we have is that we can and stop and enjoy things and yeah. i think that that's um just an important thing for everybody to remember i i guess i feel like like pressure just gets put on you in a way even when you don't want to like be a workaholic like in in when I, with my experience uh, generally I'll get like pressured into like doing overtime or like, Oh, you, you want to be a worker. But then if you say, Oh well, no, I actually don't want to overwork myself. Then you're seen as like a worse employee. Cause you're not like mm-hmm. willing to go the extra mile. So it's like this uh, dichotomy where like you want to be a good employee, but then saying like, Oh, I want to work life balance is like actually a negative for that part. So it's like Mm -hmm. trying to pretend you want to work a lot, but then like trying to play the system so you can work less is like actually the way to play it. Because if you just straight up say what you actually want, that's going to be seen as a negative for employment. I think that's true. Like historically, but I think tides are changing. I think like not fast enough. (laughs) I think Gen Z is kind of like ushering that that change in and other people are sort of making demands. I mean, the great resignation, you know, Mm -hmm. like has occurred, you know, um, and I guess is still occurring. And those, I guess, cultural norms are being challenged and people are setting those boundaries unapologetically. And that is like what has to happen. More people need to to do those types of things and to normalize that that balance um because it is it is possible to work less and still be a good employee and there's models where um companies decide to work people less you know have 35 hour work weeks so and measure productivity and in some of these uh situations you know you find that productivity goes up um when you work a little bit less and if that's the whole point of work right is to be producers you know like it seems obvious like to choose the model that like gets the most productive outcome but like we're so tied to the this need to overwork that's difficult to do that and i think that the pandemic really like put the like um pump the brakes on this whole thing especially like in a situation where i was in um when we had to go into um you know, quarantine and, and um, we couldn't uh, go back to our lab, you know, we had to like, stay home and the whole culture changed after after that. So people don't stay um, at work until 11pm anymore, they go home at decent hours, it's like totally changed people's outlook. And it was just very quickly, something that that happened um, due to the pandemic. Yeah, I would totally add just a a few triggers that you should be on alert for um, when companies talk about culture in ways of benefits such as free food, free daycare, mm-hmm. free um, like uh, free massages and nap rooms. 
a lot of times those are distractions to keep you at the office. So be aware of that. Um, there are nice benefits to have, especially around childcare and things like that. But just know that you are going to have to be really strong with your boundaries of when those happen. Other things, rewards, how companies reward you, the things that they are reflecting on. When you are going to join a new company or you're at your current company, really think about what am I being rewarded for? Um, that will really show you is this company here to help protect me? Is it help to help me have balance? Or is it for me to be the next all-star and they're always looking for me to go above and beyond my job description? Um, I think that's a huge thing um, that we end up really getting sucked into. And, and it comes down to engagement because people will say, hey, like our employee engagement is through the roof. When they say that, sometimes that means that my employees are doing 10x what they should be doing because they're mm. engaged. So you just have to think about these things. They're all really good things. Culture is really important. Feeling safe in your environment is really important. Mm -hmm. But just be aware of those surroundings and just understand that it is also on you to make those boundaries. And it's really freaking hard sometimes. But you just got to do it and you have to like put it in place. And I say this as a person who doesn't do it the best way, but <laughs> just be aware yeah. of some of those triggers or some of those red flags that sound really, really cool. But ask yourself, is it keeping me here past a normal hour? Is it encouraging mm -hmm. me to come in and stay uh, from 6 a.m. till 11 p.m.? Or is it actually helping me work better? Uh, and those are the questions that you have to ask. I think uh, really the best way to sum this whole thing up is uh, just listen to the song Going the Distance by Cake. <laughs> um, so, yeah, LMCO 1999. Uh, just listen to Going the Distance by Cake. That should pretty much sum it up along with everything we've said here. You're going um, the distance. <laughs> We're picking up you know speed. every song. I'm pretty sure that that song uh, user Alec Mo 1999. I'm pretty sure that that song is just a glorification of being a workaholic. So I wouldn't. Yeah, well, I, I think it's supposed to be ironic. Okay, well, that's an important piece of information you have to say. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I think. <laughs> Listen to it ironically. There you go. <laughs> All right, so we have a question coming in from user Artistic Injury 8302. And Artistic Injury 8302's question is What is the best brand of bottled water? It's Fiji water. Now, and, why is it Fiji water? Why fancy. is it Fiji water? Let me, if you just why take a trip fancy? to the Fiji water website, <laughs> you're doing this you right can now, learn just all so you about know. <laughs> Fiji water. Fiji, it begins as a cloud. High above Fiji, over 1,600 <laughs> miles from the nearest continent. Tropical rainfalls, purrified by equatorial trade winds. In a pristine rainforest surrounded by wow. ancient dormant volcanoes, slowly filtered by volcanic rock, it gathers <laughs> minerals and electrolytes that create Fiji water's soft, smooth taste. Collecting in a sustainable artesian aquifer, protected oh and gosh. preserved naturally from no, external elements. Fiji, Earth's <laughs> finest water, Bottled at the source, untouched by man until you unscrew the cap. That's the best water. 
Okay, wow. That yeah. was a lot. You untouched are by, untouched by man. That's the, cl that's the clincher right there, untouched by man. So that Do you one... guys... Oh, sorry. No, go for it, Jessica. Um... Do you guys remember the Fiji Water Girl? Um, I think it was from like, I don't know, like some award ceremony from like a couple years ago, like the Golden Globes or something. Um, anyways, there was like this like woman that was passing out like Fiji water to all the celebrities. And um, she was like getting in all the shots. Um, it was like a meme. It was very amusing to me. But that's... I do remember this. <laughs> yeah. So Fiji Water Girl, if you're out there, though, I still remember you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I guess your water is good, according to what Colton said. Well, what is Fiji water? And Colton, what you really did there is you gave us a beautiful explanation of what Fiji water is. <laughs> what is the wow. marketing pitch? What are they selling? Because Fiji for me, water is very expensive. Oh, it, look how hard it is to produce. Wow. Well, I mean, you got to capture it from the cloud, I guess. But Fiji, but the Fiji <laughs> water. You, now, that, what's beautiful about this is, I mean, it, it really is a capturing process. It is not a production process, which is <laughs> very interesting. And really, for me, the question here to answer is, you know, what kind of water do you want to consume? So Fiji water is a great example of a water brand that just like any other drink, soda, wine, whatever, uh, in their particular marketing scheme, they're stressing what's called in French, the terroir or the, the specific, uh, environmental characteristics of the place where the product is from. They're stressing this like natural earthy, like and potentially even sustainable, right? But plastic bottles, but they're actually not talking about plastic bottles because if you want to, because there, this is sort of one side of the coin. You can stress, and the, the word artesian and artisanal or whatever, that just gives it away because they are just, they are focused on the fact that, because what's special about Fiji water is that it is from Fiji and that the specific environmental conditions in Fiji make this water the best water in the world. Now that's very different from uh, let's say Dasani. Now, if you look at Dasani's logo, examine its font type and these sorts of things, and it let, what's Dasani's tagline? Does anybody know? Dasani, it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's Dasani, purified water. That's it. So Dasani is Dasani. Dasani stresses the purification aspect. So Dasani is your industrial water that's been cleansed and cleaned. Right. Uh, fun fact about Dasani: it has salt added to it. Oh, I didn't know that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it it also says enhanced with minerals for a pure, fresh taste. But what mm -hmm. you see, what what Dasani is selling, and that's actually okay because it's not it's not really against their their ideology that they would put some salt in there because salt is a mineral, right? Mm -hmm. And they enhance it a little bit with that. But Dasani is just selling, you know, their logo is just the name. It's selling this concept of this water that's been purified in a factory versus, and, uh, versus its opponent. Anybody know Dasani's opponent? Ice Mountain. Wrong. Aquafina. Aquafina. Look at the Aquafina logo. What you're going to see is you're going to see Aquafina. You're going to see the uh, river in the mountains. So Aquafina and Aquafina as opposed to purified, which is Dasani. So it's purified. It's stressing this purification process versus Aquafina. Uh, Aquafina is pure water. So it's just Aquafina is really kind of coming back to this notion of um, 
you know, water that's natural and from the environment. And these are kind of two poles of the bottled water industry and how the water is sold. The reality is that you should, the best bottle of water is no bottle of water at all because bottles are evil. But besides that, (laughs) you really have to decide what kind of water you want to consume. Do you want to consume the, you know, water that's enhanced with the special characteristics of the place it's from? Or do you want to enjoy the water that uh, is pumped through a factory and purified a million times and given the optimal amount of um, uh, salt in a uniform way? Um, And once you do that, you can then answer the question, which one do you like more, Pepsi or Coca-Cola? (laughs) all i can say is fiji water is headquartered in la california Mm. like Mm. how like this is really interesting to me of like how can a company like based in the u.s steal water from fiji and the name like (laughs) somebody's got to import it that seems crazy to me and then I'm looking at the Wikipedia, which we all know Wikipedia can sometimes is good, sometimes isn't. But it says that Fiji Water uses the slogan Earth's Finest Water to appeal to people to get them to buy their brand. But the water has gone through various processes. So I'm not convinced that this is like anything different other than a really good marketing scheme. Yes, but you can see how Fiji is really jumping on the, because Aquafina is, you know, admittedly pretty, um, Aquafina is Pepsi. Aquafina is pretty um, subdued. Fiji really is jumping in on that market of people who want craft drinks and artisanal beverages. And that's really all it is. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, who knows what processes these these waters are undergoing in order to oh, end up in this bottle. I can tell you what processes they undergo. So, to, to real talk here, if, you, if you're actually wondering what kind of water you should buy in a store, so if you look at the bottle, it should give you a couple things. Like, it should tell you if this is spring water or purified water. Mm-hmm. So, spring water is going to be bottled at some kind of spring source. And purified water is water that is purified in some way and if you're going to get purified water, you're going to want, I think most water you're going to buy at the store is going to be purified through reverse osmosis. Um, and there's nothing, reverse osmosis filtration is great. Mm-hmm. But um, like if I was going to buy a bottle at the store, I would probably go with spring water. So best brand of bottled water, probably any kind, I would go with some kind of spring water. Um, mountain then, something. That's my fave. Ice, ice mountain. Ice mountain. Yeah. That's see? my fave. I like the spring water too. <laughs> Further on with reverse osmosis, um, that's reverse osmosis is pretty much the best filtration you could do for water. It's a membrane system and it will remove nearly everything from your water. Mm-hmm. And like you can have like a charcoal filter, like a Brita, and that will remove some things and it will reduce some things, but not nearly to the level that reverse osmosis will. Um, so in terms of like home water purification, I would go reverse osmosis system if you're getting at anything. That that would that would be my number one solution as opposed to bottled water would be a reverse osmosis system. But if you're, if I'm buying a bottle from the store, I'm going for a spring water of some kind. Mm-hmm. Me too. I like the ice mountain, but I am a tap water gal. Give me that city water. Give me that well water. I'm all about See, it. I can't, I can't drink tap water. I can smell the chlorine in, in our water. Um, and I'll be like, Colton, do you smell that? And he'll be like, no, but I can like actually smell the chlorine in it. Um, and not just in like our city water and others as well. I mean, I can drink tap water, but 
reverse osmosis filtrate filtered water is is amazing. It's the best. You should do that. That's way too fancy for me. Just give me a nice glass of I of water from the tap. <laughs> but if if I go bottle, Ice Mountain. Josh, what's your bottle water of choice? I go for the cheapest one <laughs> if I have to buy it. All right. Well, I hope that helped you out. Artistic injury 8302. Um, on to our next question. Why is antifreeze sweet? I love this question. And, and they follow up with, after a bunch of reports of kids and animals getting poisoned because of the sweet taste, why isn't it a federal law that a bitter substance has to be added to prevent that from happening? I didn't know so, it was uh, sweet. To start things off, uh, we just want to put it out there. Do not drink antifreeze and keep it away from children and animals. Yes. Okay, so I really love this question. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I know about it. Um, so antifreeze is sweet because it contains a chemical called ethylene glycol, um, which is an alcohol that resembles other sugars that we know and love like sucrose or xylitol. Um, and so ethylene glycol is a very small molecule. It's just got two carbons um, in the chain and it has alcohol groups at either end. Um, and so the foods that we experience as sweet are known as glycophores, um, and we perceive their sweetness because of the way that they interact with our taste receptors. Um, and so specifically, the hydroxyl groups in glycophores form what's called a hydrogen bond um, with proteins in taste receptors in our taste buds. Um, and so this starts a cascade of signals uh, that our brain ultimately is interpreting as sweetness. Um, this process, which is pretty um, complex, uh, is called signal transduction and involves many, many steps. Um, so we're going to have uh, some of this information linked for you in our podcast notes for anyone that's interested. So to answer the uh, second part of the question about why there isn't a federal law mandating the addition of a bitter substance to antifreeze, um, you're bringing up a pretty valid point on that. Um, so interestingly, I actually found that most modern antifreeze already has bitter agents added to it. But um, this is a part that I thought was really kind of counterintuitive. Um, the Poison Control Center actually uh, reports that at this addition of a bitter agent does not actually reduce the number of poisonings, which really kind of defies logic, but it is true. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answered your question. This is why everybody needs a friend that's a chemist. All right, well, we'll be back after this short break. Welcome back. Our next question comes in from user BootyEater100. Question. My mom just confiscated my keyboard. What's the best mouse-only games to play on Steam? All right. So for those who don't know, Steam is basically a platform on a computer that you can buy and play games on. And the actual answer to this question, BootyEater100, is the game Gemcraft, which can be completely played on a mouse. It's a tower defense game. It's It doesn't have very high graphics requirements at all. Great game if you only have a mouse to play. So that's my recommendation. But what you really should look at here is why the keyboard's being taken away from you. And I had a similar situation growing up to this where 
I, when I got in trouble, my mother would take away my Nintendo 64 and we had this high shelf in the laundry room and she would put it up on the shelf <laughs> like so I could see it, but I couldn't play it. And this was like, a, I think this was a turning point because I was like a terror of a child. And I think her taking away my Nintendo 64 was like a turning point. I remember being so upset. I remember looking up on the shelf, seeing the Nintendo 64 there. And all I wanted to do was play my Nintendo 64. But I was a little asshole kid and I probably deserved to have it taken away. But I think that really was like a turning point for me. Where I was like, oh, I can't fuck up or else I'm going to lose my Nintendo. Mm. And my question kind of resolving from this is, did you guys have items that you remember being confiscated by your parents? And did you find a way around it? Because I did not find a way around my Nintendo 64. I just had to be a better child. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't, I don't know if I ever had things. I'm assuming I had things taken away, but oh, I Lori was a perfect child. So. No, yeah, I, I was not. <laughs> my mom had a, <laughs> she called our grounding hard labor where she would add hours, which turned into chores. <laughs> but then my mom would kind of forget that she had hours. So we, she just kind of be like, Oh, okay, you can go do this or that. I'm like, Wow, I have like 300 hard hour labors, but whatever. I'm not going to question it. <laughs> I just, I don't think I had very many things that I was attached to. Like, I wasn't a video gamer. There weren't certain like movies or things. Oh, I guess one thing, like I would get yelled at and not be able to watch TV. And taking away Lizzie McGuire at that age was just mean. <laughs> but I think TV was their biggest threat. I didn't have many things they physically took away yeah. from me. Well, I think that was the point for me, though, was like how much I wanted that Nintendo 64. What about you, Josh? Yeah, I mean, my parents took away my video games and things like that as well. Um, in my case, I always managed to just get them back somehow. And uh, I have a more distinct memory of not getting a toy when I was a child. And that one was, I never felt a pain like that. I really wanted this Action Fleet Y-Wing. And I just remember that I I didn't get it for some reason or another, and I was just so upset. And I was trying to, like, take my other toys to my mom and be like, can we take this and, like, turn this toy in and get this, uh, this Y-Wing? And, <laughs> you know, she's like, no, absolutely not. We cannot do that. Like, you just do not get the toy because you're a little piece of shit. And, you know, I just was so upset. Um, and it took me a long time to get over that. So that was kind of more mm -hmm. of mine. But, yeah, I mean... With video games, yeah, my parents would take away the N64, take away the PlayStation, um, but then I would just go do something else for a couple days, and then I would kind of just find it after a, while, a little while, and you know, so. That's funny, though. I had no idea that that was such a core memory for you, Colton. Yeah. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember anything getting taken away. Probably my, I don't know, something lame like my stamp collection because I was a sad child. <laughs> I don't remember, actually. But I do remember, actually, my, my brother used to get so much stuff taken from him because he was, he was kind of like a terror. So my brother would get, like, video games and, like, toys and things confiscated. And, like, so I, I remember the pain of, of my brother getting a lot of things taken away from him he'd always kind of find a way to sneak it as well similar to josh but yeah as far as i'm, I'm concerned yeah I, I i can't remember anything that i like deeply loved 
like in the same sense that like Colton's experience um, changed him, scarred him (laughs) for the better, I guess. Um, I can't remember anything like that for me at all. I feel like if I had paid with my own money, they couldn't take it. So I suggest whoever this is to go and save up their pennies and try to buy their own keyboard. But in all fairness to the video game. I was so I couldn't afford it. (laughs) But collect (laughs) cans or something. I don't know. But um, an eight-year-old walking down the city streets picking up loose cans. (laughs) Become a vagrant to support your video game habit. But in all fairness to the like gaming industry, they have made a lot of strides in accessibility, which is awesome. Mm. And they've made it so that you can do a lot of things with very little. So I'm sure a lot of those games can be played in an accessible mode where you can only use your mouse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like Tanks. But that's not a game that's on Steam. But a Steam game in particular, I think Colton's got that one covered. So final recommendation is... Oh, Gemcraft Chasing Shadows. Gemcraft Chasing Shadows. Classic tower defense. Nice. So our next question is, uh, do you sometimes feel really stupid? Almost all the time, I have the awareness of my lack of awareness, intelligence, and ignorance. I have this constant idea of how stupid I am. Like always, I have this thought, this voice telling me how stupid I really am. I can't shut it down. It's like the background of my brain, an obsession I subconsciously have. It doesn't particularly make me despaired or depressed, but just constantly reminds me of my state. I accept my condition, but I also try to understand everything, question everything, and try to increase my intelligence. Even if I'm more intelligent, it largely increases the awareness of my stupidity and ignorance. Does anybody else feel the same? Yes, this is normal. There's an analogy that I think is really good for this, and it's the analogy with a circle, which represents the sum of your understanding, and the circle's edge, which represents your perimeter of ignorance, so to speak. So the more that you learn, the bigger your circle becomes, but also at the same time, the bigger your awareness becomes of all the things that you don't know. And I think it's a fact of life that no one of us can answer every question in the universe. And learning to accept that is a big step towards maturity. Once you do that, you'll be more comfortable focusing your energy on the things that matter to you and not worrying so much about all the things that you don't know. And I think that in with all that said, I would just reiterate that, yes, it's totally normal and it gets better. I definitely feel stupid often. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it it is also kind of a it it's a self conscious thing. It's a learning thing. Like there's so many pieces that go into that feeling. But yes, I I mean, I think it's normal because I feel it all the time. I do, yeah, I do too. And the que- the question really, like as I was listening to uh, Colton. Um, state the question it seems that the user has a great sense of self-awareness when it comes to this um which i think a lot of people don't have and um i think it takes quite a lot of introspection to realize like what you don't know and to be honest about that i mean we're all familiar with like the dunning kruger effect where you think you know more than you do um and i was kind of curious as to what the opposite of the Dunning-Kruger effect was. So this is something that I just kind of looked up. Um, And what I found was that the opposite of that 
Dunning-Kruger effect is imposter syndrome. And like um, you guys, like I also have often felt like super stupid and kind of like experienced imposter syndrome, um, you know, frequently, especially through my education. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that like, I will also have like an inner monologue where I'm just like, Oh my God, why are like, why are you saying that? That was so stupid. Like, and like feeling like I really don't know anything and that the edge of my knowledge is just like, um, so vast. And so this is something that I experience quite a lot. Um, it doesn't sound that like the user has imposter syndrome though. Um, it sounds like they are, um, aware, but I think that they could be a little bit easier or nicer to themselves. Um, because it's okay to be aware of what you don't know, but I think that the user's making a judgment um, about their condition in a way. They say that they accept their condition, but um, it kind of reads to me that they don't. Um, and so, um, yeah, that was my take on that. Yeah, I think it's like a really healthy thing, like mentally to kind of come to terms with the fact that you don't know everything and that you can't know everything. The world is an extremely complicated place and pretty much all the great things that are done on like massive scales are all done by so many different people with so many different understandings. You can't just do one huge thing all by yourself. Like it just doesn't work like that. It's not possible. Yeah. I think also there's like, there's, you want to kind of, I don't know if I'm going to say this right. You kind of want to be feeling stupid every now and again, because it's kind of showing you that you are continuously learning and mm -hmm. growing. Um, like, I just think often about how many things that I thought I knew that I really didn't know. And yep. it's taken some pretty like weird, stupid falls to figure that out. But I now know it. So I think that that's a helpful it's helpful self-awareness, like Jessica said. I've learned to always, yeah, I agree completely, Lori. Um, I, because I've experienced this as well, I've learned to always be open to the possibility that um, I don't know everything and I might not know, um, you know, like something as intricately as I, as I assume. So like that has been a blessing and a curse, I think for me, because in some things I would say that I, I can be an expert and I should, you know, like stand my ground as an expert in, uh, in certain areas. Um, and I certainly know a, a lot in those areas. Um, but I think it's been really a beneficial thing to have some of these thoughts because I'm much more open to the possibility of being wrong and from just learning and it allows me to like um, approach situations where I'm wrong as less personal um, and with a little bit more humility, or at least I try, that's what I strive to, to do. But like, I think to get to that state, you have to have that self-awareness that like, I could be wrong. Um, and I think that thinking you're stupid is a mean way to get there, but um, I think it like results in that. I think there's also topics that are you really won't find um, as many experts in as other topics. So, mm -hmm. for example, um, 
bias is a huge thing and we're always learning and unlearning and learning the biases that we have. That's not something you can necessarily be an expert always in because you're constantly learning. But sometimes you make mistakes and you have to fumble through. Whereas like you go to chemistry where there's kind of a more of a concrete answer, you can be an easier expert in that space. Um, But I would think that there's different topics and welcome the challenge of that. Right. I agree. So our next question is, how do I politely tell someone their perfume makes me sick? Wow. So this happened in... Uh, to not to me, but there was a situation I was involved in where somebody in in the workplace was um, wearing like a, a way too much cologne. You could smell them from like down the hall. It was oppressive to sit next to this person, and none of us could figure out a nice way to to um, approach the person and and just like politely tell them like, "Hey, you're." your cologne is just like overwhelming. Um, So I don't know. So this is a really great question. um, And I'd like to hear other people's answers. Um, But I've experienced this and it's so terrible. What do you guys think? I don't know what I would do either. I thought the same thing. I'm like, if it was somebody I didn't have to deal with very often, I probably wouldn't say anything because I wouldn't want to like be mean about it. In my situation, it was a person that sat right next to me. Right. That's a lot harder. <laughs> like daily. Yeah. So it's like, I think that this question is asking, is it's more um, uh, in depth than just like the perfume, right? Because then it's really asking questions of like, what does it mean to have personal space? And like, what happens when people invade that in, in ways such as this? Or like, um, and like, how do you approach difficult um situations like that like also would you tell somebody their breath was bad or like or or things like that it's sort of like along the same lines it's very awkward and can be difficult to to broach the subject and like definitely cause a lot of friction so like i didn't say anything either um i just waited it out and it was terrible but um i think there has to be a way to do this um, what do you guys think? I was hoping somebody had an answer because I really <laughs> thought, I'm like, I would feel so bad. I wouldn't want to do anything. It would take a lot for me to say something about somebody's perfume. Yeah. I, I would probably first off, try to just avoid the person, mm-hmm. uh, including to the extent that's possible, including literally just distancing yourself from them, even when you're having a regular <laughs> conversation so that yeah. they can kind of pick up on the hint that like they, they smell very strongly, but yeah. That would just be my personal strategy to try to avoid the person. I would also, if it became an issue, I would also probably use humor with the person. And I would probably try to talk a little bit about what their favorite cologne is. And I would be like, oh, what is is that today? You got some classic brute cologne on? You got some, (laughs) you got some Nautica. Yeah, Nautica Nautica for men. I guess I'm outlaw. You never know. But I mean, at, at a certain point, I mean... I guess that's a case where there is no easy way to do it, but at a certain yeah. point and everyone's going to have to judge when that is, somebody's got to say something and I'm not afraid to be that person, I think. Are you a bad person if you're not telling them? Like are you actually the bad person by not telling them? That's true. Yeah, yeah I think that 
you could make that argument. I guess if I had been a more um, brave person um, and if I knew that this person was going to stick around, um, I probably would have approached it as like, you know, breaching the subject like, hey, so I've noticed that you, you know, wear a certain fragrance. Um, I have a sensitivity to fragrances and... Um, I've noticed that when I'm close by, I'm getting headaches and things like that. And it's really like something that um, affects me. And I don't want to hurt your feelings. But this is something that like really, you know, like um, has a negative effect on me. And it's not that it's a bad smell, but I'm just particularly sensitive about it. So maybe I would try to like take some of the blame, I guess, or like try to like talk about the effect on me, like Nice little white lie. Nobody would ever, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but I would, I can't imagine being like, hey, your perfume is terrible. You know, like I wouldn't want to say that to somebody because if somebody told me that I would be mortified and I'd be like, I'd never, I'd just quit. I'd walk out away and I never would come back. Alternate, um. <laughs> alternate idea. You start the war. You start wearing strong perfume. No. And you just start ratcheting it up and see wait until they say something to you. I also love fragrances, so I wonder if, like, this has ever been me. Because, <laughs> like, you do get used to fragrances, and, like, they get stronger and stronger because you kind You're of, like, like Yeah, you become nose blind, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, like, so I switch it up a lot. So and hopefully that doesn't happen. Anybody but... that's, like, perfume smells too strong, like, they spray it on in the morning, and then 10 minutes later, they're nose blind. So they have no idea. Right. So really... I think the bad people are us for not telling them. Right. That's what I've determined. Yeah. I, I, um, the way that this person asked the question, I think they said it's making you sick. Right. Like, I think there is a, a line where it crosses, where it's causing you physical harm. And right. You definitely need to call that out because there's women who are like pregnant and, have really harsh sensitivities to smell. There's people who have like different types of experience with that. I think that it could actually physically make you sick. That needs to definitely be discussed. Um, But I think it's also similar with these little nuances of like, you have something in your teeth or your Mm -hmm. breath smells, or you have something on your face. Like, People don't really know how to tell you, but you feel better when they do because then yeah. you, they're not, you're not always wondering. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I always tell people if they have something in their in their teeth or on their face or like in their hair, but I w- still find it like I find I don't think I could tell somebody they have bad breath. Smell is the border. I yeah, Josh tells me that yeah. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I look at the full post now, and um, the user, just call me Squinky, said, <laughs> I get migraines quite frequently, and they are often triggered by strong smells like floral perfumes. So I'm sorry. I thought you were over-exaggerating your sickness, and I only read the initial question. Yeah, so that's a, that, is, that is a great mm-hmm. case where you could use that, but it's also awkward to do that, too, to kind of come forward and say, oh, I have this medical condition. It's a little bit strange, right. too, and, and not really desirable. So it's hard, and yeah. I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, people who wear a lot of – people who wear perfume and enjoy these sorts of things also have to be conscientious of it. Right, yeah. Like, if you were the person and it was – 
like okay if it was me and somebody else was like getting migraines because of my strong perfume i would want them to tell me yeah exactly Mm -hmm. but i i guess i also see like how i would be feel awkward trying to tell somebody i told you one time it was too much well, yeah, but that's different. Yeah. I wonder. So I guess like I can do it, but just because because <laughs> I know. Yeah. You. And you're close. I mean, like there, you feel safe yeah. to be able All to right, say spend that. Spend a couple years getting to know the person <laughs> and then like in two years be like, well, now that we're friends. I would say like. Your perfume's too strong. If you do it in a more not personal attack way, like. Right. Right. Like yeah. when you're you're Passive starting something new or you're working in a group or something. And you're talking about how you work or how you do things like mentioning, like I have a high sensitivity to certain things and and making it more general about you and not so much attack an individual. Um, Like I, I have a friend who has a sensitivity and she was moving into her dorm and she's getting a new roommate. And that was one of the things that she said. She said, hey, you know, I have a sensitivity to small to some certain smells. Like, can we try to avoid candles or things like that? And so making it more about you and less about them and less about mm-hmm. singling them out. I think that's the, the best yep. way to go. Well, I think maybe mm-hmm. that's where I would fail because I would just come in. I wouldn't say it directly, but, you know, when the person entered the room and I, you smell that very, you get that very strong whiff of perfume, I would just go, I would just kind of probably do one of these, Ooh! I would just kind of say, you know, I would just say, Ooh! That'd be amazing. you know, just kind of come and just kind of, you know, just use your eyebrows, kind of get into it and just say, Ooh! you know, oh that's God. what I was. So would you classify that as passive? It is passive aggressive, but then you could just go to, you could be very friendly and jovial with the person and I can, I can pull this <laughs> off, but you could be very friendly and jovial with the person. And then at a certain point you just say, what are you wearing today, buddy? <laughs> I'm sure that'll go oh over really gosh. well, but this whole exchange makes me want to die. Please note that Josh does not <laughs> go into an office. He stays at home and he does not have to do that half the time. So. Wow. <laughs> Telling the world about our lives. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, just call me squinky. Uh, let's talk migraine medicines. Um, I also get migraines. So let me know your best medication. Um, I'm strong on the Tylenol. That's that's the best for me, but let me know if there's anything else I should try. Tylenol straight from um, trees. Wait, do you like Excedrin? Mm. I hear about Excedrin a nah, lot. No, it doesn't doesn't work it's for not, me. It's not not powerful enough. I no, I just I don't know. I'm not sure why or what, but some medications work better for my mm, migraines than others. Interesting. I think it's because modern medicine hasn't figured these out. We just don't know. There's some drugs that are available. None have worked for my migraines either. Sad. Um, which is sad. One of them is kind of interesting. It's called sumatriptan, and it's a tryptamine. It's a very interesting molecule, but that one sadly didn't work for me either. It's interesting. Migraines come from a lot of different things too. Like I know somebody who gets migraines because their blood sugar is too low, too fast or something. Mm. Like migraines from like sound, migraines from smells. Like it's really... Figure out your yeah, triggers. It's super easy. interesting. <laughs> <the> fucking not. <laughs> yeah, come from yeah. everywhere. I've had like so many theories over the years about like, oh, maybe this is a trigger, and it, it's not. Worst. Huh. I don't. I don't want to talk about <laughs> it anymore. It makes me sad. But does it make you sick? Well. <laughs> 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 All right. On to our last question for today. Do you pronounce it Captain or Cap'n Crunch? So that's the word captain spelled out or C-A-P apostrophe N. 
and I pronounce it Captain. And how do you not pronounce it Captain? What do you guys say? Definitely Captain Crunch. Mm-hmm. No, I, I say Cap Crunch. Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch. Cap. Cap. Captain. So you. So Captain yeah. Crunch. So it's it's what you do is you gotta just say so you instead of saying you can either say Captain or you can say Cap, but then you don't release the P. You just say Cap. Mm-hmm. And then when you release it, you just do nasal sound. And in this case, because it's a P, most English speakers are going to realize it as an M sound, even though it's an N, because it is in the same place of articulation as the P. So you just hmm. go through with that and you say, Captain Crunch. So I'd like to point out that's not a word. Well, it is a word because I just said it. So <laughs> it is a word. Uh, and it's I think it's what's indicated in the um, in the apostrophe, which is there for a reason. It's not they don't spell Captain Crunch on the box. They spell it with the C-A-P apostrophe N. And I believe that that's the phenomenon that that uh, digraph is representing. But they do show a picture of a captain. Like well, a you pi- assume he's pirate a captain. You captain. assume he's a captain. He's you assume he's a captain. He could be a lieutenant, a first mate. He could be. Anything. He's got a. He's he seems pretty legit to me. Well, seem it's seem is uh seem doesn't really mean anything. It's he he is a cat. He's he might be a captain, but I think that there is. I think that there's a really good answer to this, and we could probably go to the Captain Crunch commercials. You know, <laughs> I do think they say Captain Crunch. I was young. I just like was like, what did they say? And I just said captain because that's the word I knew. This whole captain thing's not a word. Just I Just say it fast. So. It'll happen mm-hmm. naturally for most people if you just say it fast. You know, it's well, kind of it's kind of to. annoying to go from saying the p sound, which is at the front of your mouth, to the t. They're mm-hmm. both plosives, so they're both. That just means they're both releasing a lot of air, so it requires a lot of energy to say both of those sounds. And so you have to be self conscious about it when you say captain crunch. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, I just want to say, and now I'm looking at pictures of the Captain Crunch's boxes, and the guy definitely has a C on his cap. I think he's a captain. Okay. He could be Lieutenant Crunch. <laughs> or he's a captain. It's his captain. So do you guys still eat Captain Crunch at all? I, I would like to eat some right now. What's your favorite kind of Captain Crunch? Ooh, I think that it's, you can, it's really hard to beat the classic and regular. You know, just classic regular Captain Crunch. It's hard to beat that. I don't know. I like the peanut I like butter. The peanut butter. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about the peanut butter. That's also a pretty good one. I'm looking. They have a churro, churro bite. What? Pancake mix. They have Captain Crunch berry tastic pancake mix. Oh my gosh! They also have ocean blue maple syrup. What? Wow. And the great thing Why? about these is that you don't have to sacrifice price for value. <laughs> <laughs> they also have um, like granola bar treats. There's a whole product so, line out here that I didn't know about. There's a restaurant we've been to before that has a uh, Captain Crunch French toast. Mm. And you get like this, this like Captain Crunch tasting Ooh, that like delicious. coating along with Captain Crunch on top. Yeah, they like literally it's coat really the French toast. They like dredge it in Captain the regular Crunch batter. No, yeah, no, no, no. So they take the French toast and they soak it in the egg mixture, like normal, and then they take the that like soaked piece of bread and then dredge it mm. in Captain Crunch, so like, good. and then they fry it. On whatever grease fry, <laughs> and then you know we get it and smother it in mm, more butter. And that sounds so good. Some more sugar. It's super good. I thought you guys had had that with us. But... We may have, but all I'm saying is you're missing Captain Crunch's Ocean Blue Maple flavored syrup. 
Well, if if we care at all about whether or not the French have the answer to this question, it appears that on the uh, Captain Crunch box and the French version, it does say the full word Capitaine Conch. So it does say it doesn't say there's no apostrophe. It has the full French word for captain. Um, and I think that that if you are, I think if you're looking for an answer globally, I think that might be your answer. Yeah. So we're we got to be on the right side of history, right? Yeah. I, I still I still privilege the first one though. I think that ultimately. Um, you just can't replicate something like that. It's just too, it's too perfect. <laughs> also, crunch berries are really good. They're all so oops, good. Oops, all crunch berries or the mix? Oh, the regular crunch berries, not, not yeah, oops, all yeah. berries. The oops, all crunch berries is terrible. Yeah. That's yeah, the worst, Captain. Right, crunch. I agree. Should not be fruit flavored. I would say probably peanut gross. butter is the best, followed by the crunch berries. Regular, followed by yeah. the regular, the regular crunch, and then last place and distant fourth place. Oops, all berries. It's literally yeah. oops is in the name, so it's. I pretty much agree with that ranking. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for our questions today. Um, send us your thoughts or questions to our email at no stupid answers podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NOSA podcast. That's N O S a underscore podcast and uh, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and we'll see you next week. Bye all.